Acts chapter 2. I want to talk to you this, a little bit more this weekend about this issue of cultivating hunger for God. And uh, there are times historically when that is easier than other times. Times that are often referred to as revival. Revival in a, in a very shortened version is basically a season when it's really easy to, to respond to God. In fact, it's easier to respond to God than not to respond to God. It's almost like revival creates a siren song for God. If you remember the ancient Greek mythology, these, the story was that uh, there were these group of women, the sirens, and, and when, when uh, guys would pass by, sailors would pass by on ships, and they got near the, that particular island where those sirens were, if they heard the sirens singing, they would, with, I mean, just like zombies almost, just be pulled toward them and lose their mind and jump into the water and swim to the island where the sirens were, were singing, and it didn't end well because they ate them. But the point is, is that the, 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 it has, in literature, this notion of a siren song means it's irresistible and you're pulled toward it. Uh, you can't seem to break the pull. Revival approaches that. When there's a time of revival historically, it's almost as if people could hardly resist issues of eternity and issues about God. And there's this extreme interest. Well, we see this popping up all through history. And first, one of the first evidence of this, or the first evidence of this, is in Acts chapter 2. After the church is first just born into the world, the Holy Spirit has come. And there's this amazing moment that we call Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. And after Peter gets up and tells the sermon about what is going on when people are gathering, this we pick up the response to that sermon. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 37 is where we start the narrative. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, there was something more going on than what, what the message and the preacher was saying. This is the miracle that, that theologians call the miracle of preaching. That somehow as, as we declare God's word, something more is going on than what just is being said. They were looking for the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And so they were, as they were listening, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, what do we do with what you're telling us? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Now, in our 21st century mindset, repent is a pretty pejorative word. In other words, it's a mean word. Repent, that's what we think. But that's not what, this is not how they would have received this idea. Repent in this context simply meant to change your mind. Change your mind about what you have thought about the story you've heard about Jesus. Change your mind about what you think God is doing in in the Jesus story. There's something more here. There's something good here. So change your mind. That's how you're to respond to what we're saying. Change what you're thinking about Jesus. Change what you're thinking about how God is interacting in the world. And then be baptized. Baptism meant to be washed, to be cleansed, to, to, to and, and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you, he says, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God will gift himself to you in a way that touches and transforms you. This promise is for you and your children and, who are, and also for all who are far off even to us. We're pretty far off, but the promise is to us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. I love that. I love that God calls us. I think we have to remember or remind ourselves that the reason we're even interested in God is because God is putting that interest in us. The scripture says no one seeks God. There's something broken in the human race. And so theologians call it prevenient grace. And what that means is that God puts the seek in you or you would never seek him. And so the reason you're interested in even being here this morning is because God is calling you. 
I love that because when we try to encourage other people to faith, we have to realize we don't have to talk them into it. We can be try to be, we can be open and passionate and persuasive in our language, but we have to understand that that's not really what converts people. What converts people is somehow God pulls on them on a level that's deeper than in the intellect. Hmm? I love that. And so he says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message, they were baptized about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This constitutes revival, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles and all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and their goods and they gave to everyone who had needs. So these people, if you read the context, they were coming from all these different places. They want to leave. So they started selling their stuff to hang around. You know, it was an extended hangout time in Jerusalem. And it says, every, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. I mean, about the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's table, and meals together. They ate with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying all the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And sometimes faith is like a virus that just uh, spreads in epidemic levels. It's out of control. Somehow, God captures the hearts of people. And history records over and over these, these, these issues of revival, these times when, when it's easier to surrender to God than not to surrender to God. I want to give you three quick examples. We can go all the way to this second century, third century, all the way through history you can find them. But let me give you a couple of later examples. In August of 1817, that's not too long ago, in a village in North Wales, a guy by the name of Richard Williams was a guy who preached, came to preach in this tiny congregation in the uh, rural area of, of Wales, in North Wales. And while he was preaching, both Williams and the congregation reported that there was a, a kind of a striking of an unusual presence of the Holy Spirit. The witnesses wrote this, quote, we never saw anything on this fashion. We never saw anything on this fashion. And uh, within just a few weeks, homes miles and miles around of this church were filled with prayer meetings every night. And uh, uh, there was reports of the classrooms that somehow God would spill in there. One report of a gal, one of the lady teachers was just reading out of the book of John and reading about the crucifixion scene. And as she did, these kids, grade school kids, tears started flowing down their faces. And then the whole school sort of just had this kind of sense of awe started filling people's lives. They called it the grasp, (laughs) the grasp of God. That's what they called this, this revival. And it ran rampant across Wales. It was reported that, quote, in churches, some would gather, they'd pray for pardon, they'd kneel on the floor in the pews. Others would stand while uttering praises for God's mercy. Uh, and some were marching to and fro. It's a very, very conservative time, but they were marching around to and fro, singing with their whole soul the song of deliverance. It was a re- season of rejoicing. One day, even while busy haymaking, Someone started singing a hymn to himself, another caught it, and another, until the whole band of haymakers, forgetful for a while of their toil, became a band of praying, singing worshipers. This revival continued for three or four years, end quote. In the late 1730s, uh, George Whitfield, some of you may remember, he was was founder of one of the early colleges, Oberlin College in uh, the East Coast, uh, he began preaching in Philadelphia. This is the dawning of America, right? This is, this is the, the very beginnings of our country. And, and Philadelphia at the time had about 12,000 uh, 12, people that lived in it. 
And when Whitfield started preaching, thousands flocked in. In fact, he'd have crowds in Philadelphia of almost 8,000 people in a town of only 12,000. And uh, he began to preach around the American Northeast, and uh, he actually drew audiences between 20 and 30,000 people. Now, now think about this a minute. This is before sound systems. 30,000 people in a room or in an arena kind of thing or in an outdoor thing. Uh, Benjamin Franklin actually wrote in his journal that he estimated that Whitfield could be heard clearly by up to 30,000 people at a time. He wrote in his journal, quote, this is Benjamin Franklin, from being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through Philadelphia in the evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street, end quote. What is that about? So interesting. Uh, one more, Charles Finney. He's a guy uh, that lived in the 1800s as well, and he was involved in this revival in America. And he wrote on the morning of October 10th, 1821, quote, in the evening of, that, of the same day and on the morning of the following day, I received overwhelming baptisms of the Holy Ghost that went through me as it seemed to me, body and soul. I immediately found myself endued with such power from on high that a few words dropped here or, and there to individuals were the means of their immediate conversion. My words seemed to fasten like barbed arrows in the souls of men. They cut like a sword. They broke the heart like a hammer, end quote. And as you follow this revival that kind of followed Finney, he would go into public places. There's story after story of what would go on with this guy. And one particular that, that I found striking was he walked into a, into a, a, um, a whole um, uh, factory. And when he got inside, he struck up a conversation just casually with one of the guys that were working. And slowly, the whole factory started shutting down. And within just a few minutes, the place was silent until men began, it was mostly men working in those days, began to fall on their knees and began weeping all across the factory. It was just like something supernatural had hit. Most of us in this place have never seen anything like this. Um, the closest some of us have come, I know some of you experienced this, was the Jesus people revival that hit in the late 60s and early 70s where those of us who were sort of rebelling against the times and were the hippies and the, you know, a little bit of the drug culture, the flower children, all that kind of stuff was going on. And all of a sudden, this interest popped in California. People started responding to the gospel. And in 1972, Time magazine had this article talking about the Jesus Revolution and, and showing pictures of thousands, tens of thousands of people coming to Christ and being baptized, young people. It was, in, it was in 70 that uh, someone came to our town that had gone to California, was part of what was going on there, and had come to uh, our little town in Wisconsin. It was a rural community of 1,800 people. And he came back, and he was just telling people what had happened, how his life, he was finding interest in Jesus. And it just sparked something in our little town, and all of the... the uh, <laughs> All of us were responding. The drug people were responding to Christ. And, and uh, we, had, um, we had dozens and dozens in our little town. In fact, we had, uh, our, our, just to see how small this was, our Wisconsin, it's a little town called Nielsville. We call it Squealsville. Uh, but Nielsville had a, uh, our whole high school and junior high was about 400 people. And it, for a, a number of years, every morning, 
we would gather, and there'd be up to 75 of those 400 kids gathering to just pray and seek God and to listen to Scripture for just a few minutes. Very powerful kind of time. And I don't know how to explain it, but not only was that going on, it just seemed like it was so easy to say yes to Jesus. Not only was that going on, then we'd, be, we'd begin to pray just in our little community. We started going to this little church, a little Assembly of God church, a little Pentecostal church. About 100 people were there. And uh, a bunch of us kids flocked into that place. 40 or 50 of us flocked into that place. And uh, uh, we started praying for God to move in our little town. And we began to, for about eight weeks, we were crying out. We'd pray in the mornings, and we'd come back at night and pray for two or three hours at night, every day. You know, 14, 15, 16 year old kids. And somewhere along the line, I don't know how to explain this, I'll just tell you what happened. Walking, I remember walking along the street with a couple of the other guys, and it was almost like something fell on our town. And I remember thinking to myself, and I looked at the other guys, you feel that? Yeah. What's going, something's going on. And so <laughs> it, it almost was like we, when we started praying for things, things would start happening like unex, inexplicably. Like we were gathering in a prayer meeting, and there was one particular gal that came to mind, and we all said, hey, let's, let's pray for Kay. And it's because we had been praying for people, and after we'd been praying for them for a while, we'd talk to them. They just seemed to be more open. So we thought, this is like magic. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you know, God, let's do something here. So we started praying for Kay and said, God, help her come to you. We want her to come to you. And, and about 20 minutes later, 25 minutes later, we're, it, this is like on a Friday night uh, at this church, no, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, in the, back, in the front door of the church comes in Kay. She walks in. We're like, you know what? what? I mean, it's like, you know, remember when they were praying for Peter to get out of jail, the whole church together, they prayed for Peter to get out of jail. And when he got out of jail, they all said, no way, it's a ghost. I mean, it, was like, it was like that. It's like, it's a ghost. Because <laughs> she came. And, and so we said, we were just praying for you. She said, I felt like I had to come here. So we'll come down here. We prayed with her. She received Christ. Uh, so this kind of thing was going on. And uh, we had this um, uh, kind of funky, odd couple that were evangelists because you had traveling evangelists. And these, this guy, and I'm not trying to be mean, I promise, he was, had to be the king of the dorks. He was one of the dorkiest people you have ever met. He talked dorky. He weared funky clothes. He was just a dork. And, uh, and, just, and his wife, bless her heart, she had a Marge Simpson thing going on on her head. You know, the old beehive Pentecostal thing going on in her head. And it, it, they were just an odd couple. And they'd stand up there with a the guitar and they'd both sing. And she, I was just, I don't want to pick it up too bad. <laughs> it, it just was no sense that this was going to work. But the point is, people were responding like crazy. The altars were filled one particular night. It was just jammed with all these young people. And, uh, uh, and this one gal uh, uh, who was fairly resistant whenever we talked to her about Christ, she was there, and she was on her knees, and she was weeping, and she, she claimed that she had seen something like an angel or something. She'd seen something. She was so excited. She got up. She said, I've got to go tell my parents. So she got up, and she shot out of the church and went to her house. What was odd about it was she lived three miles away, and she ran all the way there, though her car was, in the, was on in the street part. <laughs> she was so jazzed. She was just so excited. So my point is, is that this kind of I mean, I have no idea how to explain why stuff like that happens, where all of a sudden the, it, 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 God just starts moving in a way that's inexplicable. That kind of spilled into the charismatic renewal. Some of you might have been part of that. And then, and then churches started springing up. By the time you, though, you hit the end of the 70s, it, it's not like it's, I mean, there were cool things that would happen, wonderful moments. I, think, I still think we have wonderful moments. But it's not the same. 
It's not the same as those kind of revival issues were. And, and, and I, think, I think that what we have to understand is that even though there are times that there are revivals, and man, if I could push a button to make it, or if I ate all these red things and it would happen, I'd do it. You know, let's, let's bring a revival. I mean, I, I wish we controlled it, but we don't. And, and so there's a lot of times when things don't happen really powerfully, and there's not a real revival going on. We see an example of this in Acts 16. And we just read Acts 2 where there's huge things going on. Let's go to Acts 16. Let me show you, juxtapose these two stories. So this is Paul, and he's leaving from Troas with uh, Luke and uh, his uh, group of people he's traveling with. And in verse 12, it says they traveled to Philippi. It's a Roman colony and, and, a, and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. Now, the backstory on this is Paul has been struggling. He's trying to move forward, and he doesn't know which way to go. He wants to go to Asia, Asia Minor, which is to the east. And then he, but he knows there's opportunity to the west. And as he's seeking it out, they finally get a sense in their heart. He actually has a dream of someone from Macedonia saying, come to us. And so they decide to go to Macedonia. So now this is the description of how the Lord is leading them, supposedly leading them, to Macedonia. And so on the Sabbath, they're outside the city gate to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to some women who had gathered there. And one of the lows who were listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart. Notice that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer of the Lord, she said, come and stay in my house. And they persuaded them. Once when they were going to a place of prayer, that we, he says, Luke's is saying, we were met by this slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So there's some kind of weirdness going on here. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us, and she kept shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So she's really telling the truth, but she's got the creep on her. It's like Paul's going, this girl's creepy, man. There's something weird going on with this girl. And she kept us up for many days. And finally, Paul you know, has a Popeye moment. I can't take it no more. And he's so troubled that he turned around. And he said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And at that moment, that spirit, whatever's going on here, it changed. It left her and she changed. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that, that she wasn't going to be weird like that anymore, and they lost their hope of making money, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd jumped in on it. They weren't all coming to be saved. They jumped in on the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was uh, commanded to guard them carefully upon receiving such orders. He put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, a miracle ended up happening in this story. That, but once the miracle happened, they hightailed it out of there. So, so here's, I mean, on some level when you look at this, you go, okay, the, the facts on the ground are one lady and her family come to Jesus. One person got delivered from demonic oppression. And then Paul and Silas got a beat down and got thrown into prison. This is not great. This is not good fodder for a, a, a missionary newsletter. I mean, if we had read this, we'd have said, you know, Paul, maybe you should just come home. Right? Because it doesn't look like much happens, right? It looks like it's just a lot of energy, a lot of effort. Maybe that vision he had, somebody saying, come to Macedonia, was the result of the pizza they ate that night. 
Maybe this was a whole mistake. And yet, because there wasn't a lot going on on the surface that was measurable. And here's the question. What if God is moving in measurable ways in revival? And what if God is moving in unmeasurable ways when there's not revival, but he's always moving? Interestingly, general textbooks in history, I've run into this just in, just re, in history classes in college, um, they tell us that you can trace Western civilization all the way back to the great Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, when he chose to not go to Asia Minor, but to go to Macedonia. Right there was the start of Western civilization. So it looked like the greatest failure in Paul's ministry and life was probably the greatest success. It just didn't look like it. There's, there are times when God is moving with power, and there are times, in fact, I would, I would suggest it's most of the time, where there's no real revival going on. Ideas about God and eternity don't seem to capture the interest of most of the people. In fact, God seems a little boring. There's a verse in 1 Samuel 3, I think, that, iterate, or, or, that illustrates this. This is a, a, talking about Samuel, who was a prophet. It says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. See, I would suggest to you that most of human history, we live under the rare voice. We live under the rare voice. There's not a lot going on, at least to our eyes. And it's almost as if God likes to hide. Blaise Pascal, I think he's that great mathematician. He discovered the uh, vacuum. And uh, he wrote this. Quote, if God had wished to overcome the obstinacy of the most hardened, he could have done so by revealing himself so plainly to them that they could not doubt the truth of his essence. But he chooses to be recognized only by those who sincerely sought him. There's enough light for those who desire only to see, but enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. End quote. He's talking about the fact that most of the time, people are not necessarily convinced that there's a God. That there has to be, that, that it's a little bit sketchy. That faith is a little bit of a process. Now, in revival, that changes. It's really easy. The siren song sings and lots of people are impacted. The point is, though, is we don't live in revival seasons. Most of us will spend the most of our I hope we see more revivals. I hope revival comes to America. But all I know is that I've had to frame out in my life a kind of praxis, a kind of way of living that focuses on the times when the word of the Lord is rare. So how do we live in a time of non-revival? What does one do in times of non-revival? I just want to give you a couple of thoughts about that. But before I do that, let me tell you what not to do. Okay? Uh, there's a, a church on the East Coast that I was reading about this week um, pastored by a guy who's barely 30 years old. And I think he just turned 30 years old. And really an amazing communicator. The church is around 18,000 people. It's only been in existence for seven or six or seven years. 18,000 people. You know, the first 
You know, it sounds pretty impressive, right? And the first American response is it has to be the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. 18,000 people, right? Well, this particular community published a document that got into the hands of the press this last week. And, uh, uh, and they were talking about their baptisms because they're a Baptistic church, uh, part of the Southern Baptist uh, uh, kind of root. And they like baptism. And so they, they were, it was a document entitled, quote, Spontaneous Baptisms, a How-To Guide, end quote. So page one, now this is an internal document that they do with their volunteers. So page one of the document says that people are instructed to respond to this young pastor's call to baptism, but, but they're not converts that are responding, uh, you know, that are suddenly inspired to be baptized. These are these volunteers of the church that have been carefully planted in the crowd. The, the guide actually says, quote, 15 people will sit in the worship experience and will be the first ones to move when pastor gives the call. Move intentionally through the highest visibility areas and take the longest walk. In other words, they, they planted people in the crowd who never intended to be baptized and, and, and then got them to move forward to sort of encourage others to move forward. I mean, it was, it's, it's, we call this emotional manipulation in the world I come from. This is anti-revival. This is, this is done in the name of Jesus. Someone's going to hell over this for 10 minutes anyway. The to-do guide goes on to instruct volunteers that when people do respond and they're coming up to the front, that they're, they're, they're to sort through them, pick the young, energetic, attractive people, send them to the stage first. No matter who comes, you send those to the first stage first. And if they talk to someone they seem particularly articulate or interesting, then they're to put a black band on their wrist so that when they come up, the people that are running the media and the people that are running the, the baptism can focus on them to ask them any spontaneous questions. Praise the Lord. See, this kind of ethos, this kind of environment, this kind of culture is really how the big box churches have devolved into. Honestly, I speak in these churches. They're wonderful people. Their hearts are good, but it doesn't mean it's right. Their focus is usually on numbers an obsession with numbers. They have an obsession with speed and efficiency. Everything they, they, everything has to be done in a particular time. When I speak in some of these contexts, they tell me you have 27 minutes, 32 minutes. Everything that looks natural is all prefabbed. And there's this, this they create how-to manuals to dictate every step of the process. Not unlike McDonald's or something. You know, you don't go to one McDonald's, they cook the burger for seven minutes, and another one, they cook it for three. They're all the same. They follow the how-to. And these churches often have exact, they do the exact same thing in the exact kinds of time. There's a creation of religious spectacle, like this, this baptism thing. Sometimes they'll, they'll create an atmosphere where there's smoke, even though there's no fire. Um, they have dramatic music. Because it captures the emotion. See, this is the American kind of revival fabrication. 
David Key was quoted on this particular church, mentions the church and says, they've obviously discovered what we in the industry call the disnification of religious services. It's when you put on big helmets that look like Mickey and you go, hi, everybody. It's interesting. People come to watch it. Is it God? It's making something out of nothing. 18,000 people are going to that church this weekend. Is that wrong? No, but is that really a sign of God's hand? I mean, really, the more that come, that's really God? Really? We were preaching at a church recently that I love the pastor and his wife, and I love this church. It's a really cool church. They're telling me about they started a new video campus, and Within months, they're up another thousand people and they were talking to me about it. And, you know, when pastors talk to pastors about that, you know, it's to say, you know, look what God's doing. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know if that's God. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that stuff is. When I read that some of these kind of churches have, you know, 50,000 people going to church and, and it's almost as if it's like they're saying, look what God's doing. And I think, really? You, you measure what God's doing by how many people show up? Really? Because if, if, if we measure, what if people are just coming because you're making something that's interesting to watch and people just want to bring God in their lives and not be bored? I mean, what if they just create a kind of interesting environment that people just want to go to and since they chose to go to church, they'll just go and just do it? I mean, just because people go doesn't, I mean, you know how many people went to the Super Bowl? What, 80,000 plus people in that room? You know how many people watched? 111 and a half million people. 111 and a half million people. Man, the Holy Ghost must have been on that game. All those people. And that worship music in the middle. Can that boy say or what? Really? Really? When the word of the Lord is rare, I think we're prone to valuing things that are not necessarily true to value. I think what what we want to do is ask ourselves the question, am I being changed? Is my life being transformed? And and because we're not in a time where revival is spreading like a virus and pulling with a siren song to everybody, what what if I need to address my heart before God and say, God, help me hear your siren song for me Help me run toward you and not from you. And God, help me in, in some way have such a revival in my own soul that as far as my space is concerned, as far as my influence is concerned, would you make my life a siren song for you? Would you open it up so that people that talk to me and get to know me more, that when they get to know me, they start bumping into, into things that surprise them, that I'm prudent, I think through my, the results of my actions, that I'm temperate, that I learn to balance my life and not freak out in any one thing or another. That I'm, that I'm willing to, to think justly, to wonder, you know, what, how am I living and how is it impacting others around me? And are there things you need to address in me? And one of the things God's dealing with me right now that I hate it, but, but I, 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 I'm such a blabbermouth. And, and I, I, particularly, I mean, I've got adult children and when you have adult children, you just can't talk to them as much as you do when they're little. You just talk to them and control them when they're little. I wish they would let me control them the rest of their lives. I wish you would all let me control you. Because Jesus loves you, and I really do have a plan for your life. 
But it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way. And so learning how to just shut up and listen and, and, and anyway, so this is one of the things God, uh, so I'm, I'm coming, and God help me have faith and help me have hope and help me have love. So that when you're messing with me and dealing with me and instructing me, and, and don't be confused. You know the text from Jeremiah 1.10? This is a, a great text. It's, it's a horrible text, but it's a great text. God says, see to Jeremiah, I point you over the nations and the kingdoms to what? Read it with me. Uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow, and then what? Build and plant. We all want God to just build and plant. But two-thirds of God's ministry in your life is destructive. God, would you build and plant my marriage relationship? Just build and plant. So, Because there's kind of yucky things going on, and I would love you to build and plant it. God said, yeah, but let me first uproot, tear down, overthrow, and destroy how you think about marriage. God, would you build and plant my financial life? Yeah, but let me uproot, tear down, overthrow, and destroy what you think about money. So whenever you come to God, just get ready, get ready, get ready to get beat up. It is soul bruising. You know how they talk about building muscles, you got to tear in order to build? Man, that's exactly how your soul works. That's why the scripture says, do not pull back when you experience the discipline of the Lord. Because the Lord loves who he disciplines. And if you're not a one to be disciplined, he says, you're not a legitimate son. The King James says, you're not a bastard. Of course, I wouldn't say that in church, but don't you love the King James Version? Because some of you are illegitimate sons. <laughs> so anyway, my point is, is that you have to have Times and seasons, if you, and when there's non-revival, a personal revival. And the way that you do that, and here's two things I want to say. One is feed your faith, not your doubts. Now, the reason I say that is because some of you younger ones in our midst, or maybe you're a newcomer to faith, you have to understand that faith in its very essence has doubt in it. Because faith is not certainty. It's not absolute knowledge. It has doubt in it. it. It could be something else. But faith, it has that just enough evidence that you think, I think this is what it's saying and you trust it. It's a leap, is how Kierkegaard put it. It's a leap of faith. But, but don't be freaked out that you have days of doubt. In fact, I, I love the, the uh, uh, Frank Buechner. He, he, he said something like this. He said, I, if, 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 when I wake up, he says, three times a week, he says, I wake up and I think, can I believe it all again? And he said, if you don't ever have that question, you're not being honest about faith. You're just being, you're just being, you're just talking yourself into something and not really considering what the claims really are here of faith. So there's always a little bit of a disturbing question about faith. It's, things could be other described than the way we describe it. We don't, you know, Jesus is the door into spirituality. And we walked in the, you guys all walked in one of the doors of this church, but the whole church isn't the door. It's just the way into the church. Jesus is the way into infinity. Jesus is the way into God. But when you come into the arena that's God, it's, it's indescribable, untraceable. It's, that's why the theologians talk about apophatic theology. It means there's so much unknowing because God is so untraceable and your mind is not capable of grasping God. So of course there's doubt. But what you should do is decide, you know, I'm in this. 
I'm a believer. Give me the Kool-Aid. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. See, we just declare it. Even if our minds swim a little about it, because we're in it. You know, it's not unlike a marriage. You know, you're married to this person, you're in. You vowed to each other. I mean, of course, if you started scratching at it, you could say, could I have married somebody else? Is it possible? Well, now, if you think, no, I could have never married anyone else. This is the perfect soulmate. See, sometimes we think, we think, not realizing it, we, th- we think that there's a perfect person for us. And that if the marriage doesn't work, it was because it wasn't the perfect person. It wasn't our soulmate. Christians talk like this as though that's some kind of a the Lord thing, even though not, they don't understand that that whole idea comes out of paganism. I mean, the whole idea of soulmates comes out of Zeus and the story about Zeus and he's looking at the human race and he's concerned that the human race is going to rebel against the gods. He tells the gods, we got to do something because these guys are pretty powerful and we don't want to mess with us. So let's get them just a little messing with themselves. So he humans at the time, according to the mythology, had four arms and four legs and two faces. And so what he does is Zeus and the gods cut humans in half and they separate them. Now we just have two arms and two legs and we roam our whole lives because he put them away from each other. We roam our whole lives looking for the other half, our soul mate. And if we find one and we try to do it, it doesn't work. You weren't my soul mate. Away! And then we keep roaming until we find our, and how do we know we find our soulmate? Because then it's easy. It's always easy when you find your soulmate. It's like falling in love. Falling in love. It's like falling. I love it. It's so just, I love it. We want to fall in marriage. I just fell in marriage. It's so just folly. The truth is, I mean, you know, Gail and I, this was our, we had, this was our 40th um, Valentine's Day. So, <laughs> yeah, we have, we're survivors. <laughs> and I brought 40 roses, you know, I'll never do that again. But it was, you know, because there's only 40, I'll have to bring more, right, honey? Right. Okay, anyway. Brought in 40. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Quick on my feet. I brought in 40 roses and, you know, and, and, and we celebrated that. But, you know, we knew. I mean, there, there could have been a, a different person we ended up being with. But you know what you don't do? You don't think about that. Right? You're in. In fact, this week I was, uh, you know, we were in Denver. And uh, so we were researching some stuff about the house church and trying to do that. And, and uh, Brent and uh, Cody and Blaine, we went up there. And uh, I was staying with Cody. And, you know, I, I was, so Gail wasn't there. And so we were, I was walking around in my room. Because saying this little apartment thing, I walk around in my room and I, and I remember waking up in the morning and I, I just felt like, oh, I mean, I felt like this, oh, like I miss Gail. I had this Gail miss. And I thought to myself, you know, I've always loved her because she's beautiful and I've always loved her because she's my best friend. But this was not, I love you because you're beautiful, love you because you're my best friend. It was like, if I don't have you in my life, I think I will die. It was a desperate love. I thought, oh my gosh, it's an old man love. <laughs> I've hit old man love where we can get old together and it's okay. Get all wrinkly and old and, you know, because you know, we tease sometimes saying, okay, when we get old and we start, you have to kiss each other, you know, I'm going to have to negotiate that. Okay. I'll, 
But we're not afraid of that. We're in this. See, but you know, if you're, if it was a couple, if you think, well, I could marry somebody else. And you start thinking about it, you say, well, I wonder who it would be. I wonder who I could be with. If you're not careful, your doubt will destroy what you have. You have to have doubt in your faith. That's why it's called faith. Don't feed your doubts. Feed your faith. Tell your mind. I read it when I'm not here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. I speak those things into my life because I'm in this. So that's number one. Feed your faith, not your doubt. And then lastly, you need to develop a consistent, persistent high tolerance for boredom. Because most of the spiritual stuff is boring. It is. Just read your Bible. I mean, if you claim to me, you're just constantly, (gasps) (laughs) you're smoking something. Because the Bible is kind of boring. But, But here's what's cool about it. If you just commit to reading it, every once in a while, you'll be surprised because God will go, just every once in a while, he'll come through the text and you'll feel an inspiration or a, an idea that's illuminating and you'll be surprised by the text. Same thing with prayer. You, it, prayer can be really boring, but if you just stick in there, I'll pray the Psalms. And sometimes when I'm praying the Psalms, I think, what in the world are they even saying? You know, I say, shut up, Ed. Just give yourself to this. And I get it, and, and every once in a while when I'm praying the Psalms, not all the time, but every once in a while, you know, God will peek through. I mean, some of this stuff, it's like those little jack-in-the-boxes, you know, when you had kids. We have grandkids now, so I do it now. But, you know, right? And everybody goes, you know, then the kids go, I start reading my Bible and it's really boring. But if I just keep going and going, I get an idea. That's sweet. You have to be committed to things like fasting. That's why I'm excited about Lent. If you want to come this next weekend, we'll talk to you about putting a God journey together that incorporates silence and fasting and extra prayer and stuff that's all boring. At least it's start. And what you'll do is you'll discover you press in that something will begin to change in you and you will have a revival and your life will become a siren song that will influence people around you. I'm going to invite the uh, uh, worship team back. And those of you helping us with communion, would you all stand together with us? Let's close as we come to the table. Cultivating hunger. Please remember to grab your card and turn these in. We need the information so that we can know how to prepare. We come to this moment because we're trusting that somehow Jesus is present here in a way that's very different than just in worship songs and in our prayer time. We don't understand why he made this point. But he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And he so boldly says, 
that unless we eat this body and drink his blood, we have no place in him. What does that mean? I don't know. It just sounds serious. He said, this bread and this cup, he says, it's eternal life. He said, it's a meal of eternal life. Like we're eating eternal life. <laughs> so what does that mean? I don't know. Paul says, if we eat this bread and drink this cup in an unworthy fashion, that some people have actually been weakened, have become sick, and have died. Say, so what did he mean? I really have no idea what it is. All I know is all those statements about this moment tell me that there's something more going on here than maybe what I understand. And that at the very least, I should pretend like Jesus has done a mini return in this moment. And that on some level, that by touching this bread and touching this cup, that I'm touching him. That somehow he becomes present. He inhabits physicality. And it demands reverence. Because if Christ came in here, I mean, most of the time, my history has been I have less reverence for this than I would if Billy Graham walked in here. Billy Graham walked in here, I go, oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, I, I think that the, the bread and the cup are at least as all worthy as Billy. Maybe more. But I think we've let it get too pale. And so on some level, there needs to be some adoration. Pretend he's coming this morning. Pretend he inhabits that bread and inhabits that cup. Pretend in your heart that Jesus is returning right now to meet you. In this, under the veil of bread, under the veil of the cup, he's here. Like if I did this. You wouldn't see me, but you'd suspect something was under this. You're not seeing him, but you need to suspect something is under that bread. Something is under that cup, in that sauce, in that juice, in that wine. He's here. The night that he was betrayed, would you please lift up the bread? The night that he was betrayed, the scripture says he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body. Lord Jesus Christ, this bread we're bringing to you is from the earth and from the work of human hands, and we ask you to receive it. And right now, by faith, we ask you, Lord Jesus, inhabit this bread. Come into this bread and let it become for us the body of Christ. And as a result of that faith, we say to you, welcome. Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way he lifted the cup, if you lift the cup, he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Jesus, we lift up the cup to you. Again, from creation, from the ground, from the work of human hands, we lift up this offering. And we ask you by faith to fill it with your very presence and let this cup become for us more than just juice. Let it become the blood of Christ. And so we receive you into this cup by faith. And as a result, we say to you, welcome.
Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as the Lord taught us to pray as we prepare our hearts. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come and receive. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.